I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. To me, everything's topsy turvy because our society is pretty extreme. We take, say, vegetarian animals and use them for our own purposes, string them up and eat them. Or we make a coat out of them as if we're cave people or something. So I think that's extreme, that we would look at another living individual who has feelings of joy and love and grief and loneliness and everything that we feel and decide, the hell with that. I'm going to take that individual and I don't care what they want or what they wish for. I don't care that they want to live. I want something. To me, society is upside down because it's lost all reverence for life. It is really overblown in its self-esteem. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Who hasn't had an opinion on PETA? That's the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the world's largest and potentially most controversial animal rights movement. Mine have been mixed and conflicted. In the past, I've bristled, to put it mildly, at their sometimes destructive stunts, their militancy and single-mindedness. For a long time, I've felt that discussion and collaboration was a far better way to go in the activist space. But more recently, I've shifted. So often, big change requires radical efforts to get our attention and enrolment. In the climate movement, I get why Extinction Rebellion activists throw soup on paintings, albeit ones protected with a plastic coating. I can see why we finally fire up when nature itself gets fully wild and destructive. So I also look at what Peter has achieved in its 43 years, and I'm forced to respect what they represent and do. They have seriously got some shit done. Decades of over-the-top stunts did get the US Animal Welfare Act amended to curb lab testing on animals. Setting fire to cars outside a General Motors motor show got the use of monkeys and baboons in crash tests banned. One of its activists many years ago threw a dead raccoon onto the plate of Vogue magazine's editor, Anna Wintour, as she lunched in the Four Seasons Hotel to protest their use of fur. It was one of many tactics they used against the Vogue editor. Vogue no longer features fur. Fur is no longer cool, full stop. Testing cosmetics on animals also no longer cool or commercially viable. We can safely say this was all Peter's doing. 
So when I got an email from its firebrand, wildly controversial founder and president, Ingrid Newkirk, suggesting I interview her on Wild, I was excited, but also not just a little bit nervous. Ingrid famously pulls no punches. She's renowned for being fiercely radical. And I, well, I'm not a vegan. I wear wool and leather shoes, although in the main, they're mostly secondhand. So we'll have to see how this interview goes. Apart from anything else, Ingrid has an incredible life story and is full of anomalies. She's a Formula One fanatic. As she told the New Yorker some time back, it's sex. The first time you hear them rev their engines, my God, that noise goes straight up my spine. She's also a sumo wrestling fan. She grew up among lepers, was once a stockbroker. She has hung naked among pigs' carcasses in London's Smithfield Market, had a tube rammed down her throat in protest against foie gras outside Fortnum and Mason in Piccadilly, again in London. She famously raided Vogue headquarters, as well as a Ku Klux Klan meeting to stop the shooting of pigeons. And wait until you hear what she has done with her will for when she dies. Whatever your take on PETA might be and its approach to activism, I'm going to invite you to be inspired by Ingrid's dedication to combating cruelty and acting on her ethical convictions. That time that she raided that KKK shoot-up, she went to prison for 15 days. While she was there, she got completely fired up about the lack of proper medical treatment for the prisoner's many female heroin addicts. On release, she promptly brought a lawsuit on their behalf. And one. I also invite you to listen to her argument regarding the horrible legacy of our steadfast belief in human dominion over other species. This is a hard topic. It's one of the painful, pointy ends of where we are at with our awareness of our arrogance and how this has destroyed so, so much of what is in fact dear to us. So one last invite that I'll issue to you. Please I guess relish the discomfort of this conversation, it's important. And I'll share my thoughts on it and and what I learn and what I'm confronted by, as always, at the end of the chat. Okay, let's meet Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid Newkirk, welcome to Wild. I feel I need to honour something, and that would be that I think you could possibly be the wildest guest that I've well, that I'm about to have on this podcast. Well, you've obviously read my will there. (laughs) Actually, I have read about your will. Why don't you spell out the details, the current details of your will? Let's just kick off from there. Well, I'm actually about to redo it because it's been 20 years since I wrote it. And this will, which people find pretty wild, came about Mm -hmm. because I was almost in an air disaster. A plane was coming into Norfolk, Virginia, where we have our headquarters on the East Coast, and it ran into a wind shear situation with that tornado that was tracking up from the Carolinas. And these two, I think, jock pilots, young guys, decided, oh, we don't have to turn back. Every other plane had turned back. We didn't know that. And they carried on. Anyway, we were caught in what was basically like a washer dryer situation. And it was, Bad. And then they tried to land at a different airport, but not far away. And we were caught in wind shear again. When we finally made it to land with one teaspoon of fuel left and all the emergency vehicles, the next day I had that experience that a lot of people have when they have almost been killed. And I thought, 
what am I doing here? And I thought I could be dead. And then it occurred to me, if I was dead, my activism, which means everything to me, would be finished. And I thought, mm. you know what? I'm going to see if I can make a will that when I've gone, if my body is still intact or parts of it, I'll leave bits to be used in demonstrations, to be used to make a point. And so my activists will con activism will continue. So I've left things like my legs as <laughs> umbrella stands. Because That's right. When I was in India as a child, people used to actually hack the legs off elephants and use them as umbrella stands. I saw them everywhere. And I thought this ornamentation that comes from animals' bits and pieces involuntarily uh, use, I can use mine voluntarily. You can use my legs as an, uh, it'll be a thin umbrella stand. You'll only get one umbrella in it, but go for it. A walking stick stand, perhaps. Oh, yes, there you go. And then my flesh, you know, I want it milk, the same. I call it sisters under the skin. But my father was in Borneo when I was a little girl. And he said, you know, the cannibals, cannibalism had become outlawed, but still practiced in rural areas, is that they called human beings the long pigs because our flesh tastes apparently so similar. Pigs. So I, I want my flesh, a part of it barbecued with onions, so it'll smell nice. People will come over and go, oh, what's cooking? And then they'll think, oh, God, it's her. So she's still with us. I think you called them the Newkirk Nuggets. I think that's, that's how right. you were going to package it up. I have mm. some nuggets and some barbecue flesh. You've read that will. That's very good. You probably know more about it than I do at this stage. A lot changed in that 20 years. I should just clarify that, which is why I'm amending it, because I was going to give part of my body to Ringling so they could hear the elephant's screams. And the, the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, largest circus in the world, no longer uses animals. So there are things like that that have happened that it's no longer relevant. So I'm changing it to be more current. Have you got an idea of what stunt or what sort of concept you're going to work with? Well, people who don't like me send me lots of ideas of what I can do with them. <laughs> That's helpful. Very helpful. But yeah, I, I have, um, people are still buying exotic skins. I have a tattoo of a lizard that I got in a, my youth in a foolish day. Now they're all popular. And so I want that made into a lizard skin purse or wallet. And that will be mm. the first one that you can actually use without, you know, taking a life. My life will be gone. I do want to still complain about the Canada seal hunt. I want to use my vocal cords or something to complain when I'm gone, to send to the Canadian Parliament to remind them oh, that, that that's not acceptable worldwide to continue to kill seals. Mm. All sorts of bits and pieces. Foie gras. I want a bit of my liver to go to France. It's still a national dish, even though there's now faux gras. People are wonderful, creative cooks making great faux gras. So lots of different bits mm. and pieces. Yeah. What a creative project for you to work on. <laughs> it's fun. Well, look, you've been fighting for animal rights for really 50 years plus, And why don't you start by telling listeners 
the, I guess, the ethical case for respecting animal rights, which I know was somewhat inspired by the case that Peter Singer put forward in his seminal book, um, Animal Liberation. And we've had Peter Singer on this podcast. It's a wonderful episode. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. You know, we're interested in ethics, the philosophy of things on this podcast. Can you, can you explain that premise for us? I can try. I mean, I grew up caring about animals. And if a baby bird fell from a nest or somebody beat a dog, you know, I either helped the bird, didn't like somebody hurting a dog, that kind of thing. But back when I was growing up, there were no animal rights activists. There were no animal rights groups. I didn't know what a vegan was. Nobody did. A vegan was... Well, the term wasn't really invented. No, no, no. Vegan was someone from Las Vegas. I only knew vegetarians when I was in India, and they were religious vegetarians. I didn't connect any of the dots. So I loved animals, but I ate them, I wore them. My favorite hat was a wild cat skin hat. I thought it was grand. I used to ride horses, go deep sea fishing. I mean, basically, you can name some abuse to animals, and I just thought that was fine. I didn't connect those dots. And there was no one there to help me which is why I always advocate people should point out to people what they don't know, and they'll be grateful for it in the end. But I was running an animal shelter in Washington, D.C., and I was looking after dogs and cats, spaying and neutering and making sure adoptions were to good homes, making sure the animals didn't go to experiments, that kind of thing, when I read Singer's book, Animal Liberation. And it all came together for me. I realized in the back of my mind somewhere, I must have believed what he put on paper, but it hadn't dawned on me. I was a slow learner. When I read Singer's book and he said, look, Jeremy Bentham said, it's not whether they can reason or whether they can talk, it's whether they can suffer that should be the deciding factor I thought, yeah, it's not how big they are. It's not how small, how familiar we are with them. I mean, I know dogs, I know cats, I know horses. I might not know some other animals. That doesn't mean that they're there for us to put electrodes in their heads in a laboratory or string up by one leg and cut their throat so I can eat that pork chop. I mean, what am I doing? And so his concept was that just like, you know, white supremacy or male supremacy, there's human supremacy. And we need to get over yes. ourselves. We're so pompous. And yet, animals have all these talents and abilities, and they do communicate, and they do reason, and they do navigate, and they do think things through. It's just that we're in charge. And so we have become these massive bullies. And yet, we're all together in this world and we're all struggling just to survive. And they have only the disadvantages because we have taken over their land, their water, their food source, capture them, we exploit them, we use them for our amusement. Why can't we be magnanimous and see them as part of the whole? Yeah, you explain that really well. What I take from it, there's almost two pieces to it. The ethical argument draws on that utilitarian kind of concept of doing the least amount of harm. And Peter Singer makes the point 
that these sentient beings, like the point at which we make these ethical decisions should be around suffering. And we're at a really interesting juncture with that, of reckoning, I think, at the moment with what it means to be human. And it's come up around the AI debate yes. because what we're doing is we're, we're trying to define what makes us distinct from AI as we navigate the ethics around that. And ironically, we, at, in our human supremacy, we've said, oh, it's our intellect, it's our re- ability to reason that defines us as human and separates us from the animal kingdom. But now we're going, oh, no, actually, it's our sentience. It's our deep consciousness and connection with the broader flow of life and the planet that is, is what matters. And I find it really interesting to apply that to our relationship animals. The other thing that you bring up is in fact that animals have their own intelligence. It just looks different to human intelligence, but we've declared ours as the be all and end all, the marker of what, you know, what should be dominating. And in your book, Animal Kind, which came out a couple of years ago, you actually do, I think, flesh out that part of the argument. You know, you really explain some of the beautiful intelligences of different animals. People are familiar, of course, with the octopus. Most people I know have watched My Octopus Teacher and it was incredible for getting to people, people to really think about their consumption of calamari. But yeah, could you uh, explain that part of the argument, that the, the different types of intelligences that our human supremacy fails to recognize? Yes, in the book, I do go into the basic things of you can't dismiss animal intelligence when you think of how they raise their young, how they find food where there is almost nothing. They don't have supermarkets. They don't have doctors. They don't have you know, any of the things that we have. And yet they are able, I mean, there's a little bird that flies several thousand miles without stopping for a drink or anything to eat with no navigation systems, with nothing. You don't know how they're reading the Earth's magnetic waves. They're reading radio waves as they cross the, the ocean. All sorts of things are happening with them that we don't have, abilities we don't have. And so if we're going to be superior, why can't it be that we're superior empathically or superior in understanding or in empathy, respect, nonviolence? All these things are really great traits that we should honor more than greed and superiority and domination and exploitation. In the book, I talk about love. Now, people think, mm. well, you know, love is it's just it's something that's really particular to human beings. Maternal love goes through all species. You see the mother cow lowing grief when her baby is taken away from her on a dairy farm. And she will try to break through a fence. She will follow a cart. She will do anything to get her baby back. You see gorillas, when you see apes in National Geographic specials, that's the most common thing I think we see, is they adore their babies. Yet in laboratories, they're ripped away from them and they grieve and they tear their own hair out. So love also, the divorce rate among human beings is so much higher than the divorce rate among swans and cranes and other monogamous birds. They're very faithful. We tend to deride the pigeon as sort of a pest. We're the biggest pest. They're only eating our leavings off the street. 
because we bought them to cities and now they have to live off our scraps. The only reason there isn't human defecation in the streets the way there was at olden times is because we built sewer systems. They can't use them. So we need to stop that saying, oh, well, they're dirty. They're not. They don't have much option. But a mother and a father pigeon both make milk for their mm. baby in the crop. They both feed that baby the milk and they take turns with parental duties on the nest. And I think most men don't do that if they're humans and they never divorce. They are loyal to the grave. And most humans have a, a very high divorce rate. They're not faithful. So we can learn a lot from, from animals. Yeah. Yeah, I think the real message for me is this idea that, you know, our intelligence is the one that counts. But, you know, as you point out, well, choose what matters to us. Animals have as much, if not more, and are more sophisticated. And I know that one point you make in that book, and I've heard you speak about it, um, is so sure, we've invented these great things, right? All these kind oh, of complex yeah. inventions, right? But not everyone was able to develop a formula for relativity. <laughs> The average human has not done extraordinary stuff, whereas in the animal kingdom, you know, every pigeon, you know, possesses these abilities. So, yeah, there's a bunch of arguments that I think really knock down this idea of human supremacy. It's funny, though, you say that, is that uh, it's just like humans that root for a football team or something. It's like, yeah, our team won. And you think, well, some people who are playing football won. But you didn't win. I mean, it's great to have fun and wear the jersey and root for them. But this association with greatness, either of skills, talents, I mean, this is one reason we have a geek squad for IT, is that most of us, when it, our computer doesn't work, we couldn't build it from scratch. We couldn't put together a program. So, yeah, we tend to feed off accomplishments that are not true of all of us. They're true of a very small percentage of the human race. Mm, it's a humbling reminder or even revelation for a lot of us, right? I, I know some of these ideas are incredibly confronting at first, but Peter and the work that you have done has taken an extreme stance, obviously, that has been the very defining characteristic of it. And you advocate for animal rights over animal welfare, which is a stronger take on things. But I'm just wondering if you, and I'm sure you've been confronted with this argument before, whether there's a sliding scale of harm and practices or ways to eat meat or to wear wool, or is it all a moot point because the role that you and Peter have played is to actually represent this end of the, the spectrum and drag the debate right over here, I presume, so that, you know, average mainstream behaviour shifts in that direction. Can you speak a little bit yeah. about that extremism? Why it is that you've taken that stance? Well, actually, I think it's extreme given what our society does, which to me, everything's topsy-turvy because our society is pretty extreme. We take, say, vegetarian animals like chickens or lambs or whatever they are, and they're minding their own business. They've got their own groups, and we then take them and use them for our own purposes, string them up and eat them. Or we make a coat out of them as if we're cave people or something. We don't need any of it. Or we use them as surrogates in all these various ways. Elephants chained behind the big top, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's extreme, that we would look at another living individual who has 
feelings of joy and love and grief and loneliness and everything that we feel and decide the hell with that. I'm going to take that individual and I don't care what they want or what they wish for. I don't care that they want to live. I want something. So to me, society is upside down because it's lost all reverence for life. It's lost all respect for the living beings. It is really overblown in its self-esteem. And it is really disrespectful of so many. And of course, we look back at history. We've done this to women. We've done it to blacks. We've done it to children who worked in the mines. In some parts of the world, all that is still going on. And so we know that's wrong in our society. We've evolved. We need to keep evolving. So welfare is Mm. great. Longer chains, bigger cages, less this, less that. All great. But it should be toward, in our mind, the goal of the recognition that causing needless suffering to any living being and disrespecting their own interests is fundamentally flawed way of thinking. Yeah, I understand that take. I guess I'd really be interested to know where and how you draw ethical line when you take all of that into consideration. You know, I read that you pull over when you see roadkill, you know, to ensure it's dead and, yeah. and they're okay or if, if they're not. You visit dog shelters wherever you go on holiday and you're known for doing interventions when you see pe- people on the street wearing fur, as you alluded to earlier, you feel that, well, they need to be educated. How do you draw the line? Is there a line that you draw? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are many lines that I think all of us draw. It depends on the circumstances. Luckily, I don't see very many people in fur. That has changed so drastically. That that would be your work. Yes. (laughs) And if it's an older person, I I, I don't say anything because I think it's a generational thing. And no fashionable person is going to come along and think, oh, I want to look like that older person. I mean, it's just a fact of life. So I, I don't ever say anything. If it's a young person and they Can I just pick up on that little point there? Because I found it really interesting when I was researching your work because people can get really dogmatic and and sort of black and white in their thinking around this because one of your programs, which you have been criticised for, and I'm like, do they not understand nuance here, is that you have taken fur jackets that people uh, have donated because they've realised the problems with wearing fur donated them to Peter and you've given them to children in Afghanistan so that they can be warm, you know. And your argument when you've been criticised is, I don't think children in Afghanistan are going to be creating um, a trend. They're not going to be influencing people yeah. to suddenly start wearing fur again. So there's these two sort of aspects to it, right? The fur's already been created, the animal's been killed. So make use of it. Like, let's not just go and dump it into landfill. Second point is, well, if it's not glamorizing it, let's just go for it and be pragmatic. So, yeah, I just wanted to spell that piece out. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, thank you. And, and we're, we're basically criticized for all sorts of things because, they're, because we like nuance. I mean, we have a very strict idea of what animal rights is and this respect for all other forms of life and not doing anything we shouldn't, we don't have to do against them. But there are things that happen that uh, you have to make a choice. Uh, We can't bring the animals back who were killed for their fur. It's marvelous that somebody has realized they don't want to be seen in that fur and they're giving it away. They get a tax deduction if they want it, but we use them in school displays, educational displays. 
we sometimes bury some to make a point that animals, you know, are, have been killed needlessly and need some respect. But mostly we do. We sent them to Syria in the winter during the earthquake for refugees. We send them to Afghanistan and other countries for refugees who are cold and who are not going to walk into a retail store and buy a fur. And they're not going to influence anybody else to do that. They're down on their luck. They don't have anything. They're freezing cold. And these furs are lying around. So why not? Hmm. Well, speaking of nuance, I would love you to join me in a bit of an exercise. I would love you to challenge me on my meat eating. You know, I, and I'll give you a little bit of back, my background and my thinking. So I have an autoimmune disease and I don't assimilate a lot of vegetable protein. My, my doctor, who's in fact a vegan, has advised that I need to eat the amount of meat that can keep me operating soundly. Um, so when I've quit all animal protein, I've got very, very unwell. I've researched all of the various options. I buy grass-fed beef only. Um, I buy from discount bins only, you know, when it's about to be thrown out. I eat vegetarian or vegan as often as I can. I've tortured myself around this and I've looked into all the different arguments. I've gone out to abattoirs. I have followed a cow along the processing plant to watch how it all operates. And I've gone to horrible grain-fed farms and factory chicken farms to educate myself. I take things to the, to the nth degree. I've also looked at the, sort of the particularities of the Australian situation, which I'm sure you're probably aware of because I'm sure you've had, had every argument put forward to you. But there was a paper that was done, and I'll put the link to it, by a professor at the University of New South Wales some time back, I think it was 2011, that just sort of did the sums on the number of native animals, but also um, mice and rodents that need to be killed to sustain a vegan or vegetarian-based diet in Australian farming conditions versus a meat-based diet. So basically, a lot of meat in Australia, the bulk of it is, is raised on arid rangelands that can't be used for, say, soy protein and so on. But to farm soy protein and other similar types of vegetarian protein, you need to do a lot of clear felling. So a lot of native animals are killed. And then, of course, the conditions here mean that we have a lot of rats and rodents that have to be killed. Anyway, the figure they came up with is that 25 times more sentient animals are killed for a vegan diet as for a meat-inclusive diet per kilo of mutable protein. Anyway, admittedly, I haven't looked into this for several years, so that's why I'm very glad to be speaking to you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
I'm wondering what you would say to someone like me and my justifications and all of my explanations. <laughs> what argument would you put to me in and around my diet and beyond and my commitment to some of these, these ethical arguments that you've just presented? Well, obviously, you're trying very hard to do the least harm you can do. And if it's true, and I, I don't know that disease, and you've looked at it, I mean, one way up and down, I'm sure. If it is actually true that you have to have animal protein, then I think what you're doing is you're looking at discarded meat. They're like, it's like discarded fur. To me, you know, and probably to you, it's, it's fairly revolting to be eating the flesh of another living being. It's, it's like cannibalism to me. But, you know, if you have to do something and, and they're going to throw it away, I can't say that I could attack you for doing that. Roadkill, you talked about that. We actually advocate if somebody just feels they want meat, they're not going to stop, they don't care, we'll say, go eat roadkill. We could care less. The animal could care less. It's like me using my body when I'm dead. So there are ways to do it if that's really the thing. I would have a lot of problem with the statistics that you've been given because I don't know a lot about farming in Australia and arid land use and so on. But when you talk about soy, I do know about that. And the growth of the um, most soy in the world is grown the overwhelming amount to feed cattle and chickens. That's what the, mm. the soy goes into. And it's estimated, give or take, that you need six times as much vegetable protein to go into a chicken to get one unit back and maybe 16 to 20 times something like that to get one unit of beef or maybe pork back so people who are eating animals are not only eating the animals and killing them and there's no question they feel but they're also clearing the land to plant the soy to do all the yes. other things so that equation the I, grain I, I have a lot of trouble with but yeah i understand yeah, the grain-fed situation in Australia is such that the bulk of meat is not grain-fed. I think it's between 70 and 90% of beef, most lamb. Um, chicken is a different story, but I very much advocate if you're going to really focus on something, invest in ethical chicken practices, so organic only. Like, it, you know, that just yeah. should be what you do. Now, you know organic, of course, means no chemicals. But it doesn't mean fact you, they're not factory farm. And our investigations into chicken sheds where you get, for example, the carton of eggs that says free range, no cages, all this sort of stuff, organic. Yes. The chicken doesn't care if it's organic or not when it's dead or being strung up. But when you go to those farms, the animals are crowded together. They have no pecking order. They pack at each other, they cannibalize each other because they're under such enormous stress. They cannot function normally. And so cage-free, organic, nothing to do with yeah. humane. It's just maybe some, some of it is slightly less grotesquely cruel. I guess you could put it that mm. way. Well, I might just re rephrase that. Like, I think the situation in Australia is such that not a lot of the the, the the sheep and the, the beef are in fact um, grain-fed. So that argument, it's a really strong one and I, I think it's a really nuanced one. It's not as applicable as it is in the US and the UK. But I, I take your point. It's, it's a quandary and it's one that 
I guess the take I have, Ingrid, is I feel we just need to be as alive to these things as possible. And of course, George Monbiot, you'd be aware that he was a vegan, then he read Simon Fairley's book and sort of switched around. Then I think he switched back again. He's been very conflicted around the various arguments on this. But I think the central strand of his thinking is that at all times we need to be alive. So the animal welfare element, i.e. making sure there's not excessive cruelty or unnecessary cruelty in these practices, we need to be alive to that and the animal rights element Good as well. Good luck with that, though, because I, I do take my hand yeah. to anybody who strives to be less cruel. But it comes, it's not just about taking a life. You know, I've been on Australian sheep farms, 60 minutes brought me over to go from, you know, place to place. And the suffering is amazing. I went in a shearing shed when I was there. It was sort of like, we'll go in there while you're waiting. And these sheep who are gentle, free animals who are afraid of predation, being slammed down, I saw it with my own eyes, being cut to shreds, coming out of the sheep farm and the barn and just shaking and not knowing what was going to happen. They thought they had almost lost their lives. That experience will happen over and over again with these gentle animals separated from their families. They use poisons, 1080, which is a terrible gut-wrenching poison to kill other predators so that they can predate, the humans can predate upon the, the sheep. The way they're transported, the sheep dip itself, the mulesing where they cut off their hindquarters, basically the flesh off a lamb with no painkillers. We had to push for painkillers and only some people still use them. And then their transport, then their export, all these things, even if they're killed in country, they go long journeys. So it's not just the fact of the numbers of animals being killed. It's the enormity of the suffering of the chickens and mm. the pigs and the cows. The dairy farm we went to in, in Australia, we couldn't get cruelty charges against them because it was considered normal practice of shooting the calves in the head and not getting the shot right. And the mother is watching while her calf is screaming. That's normal, regular animal agricultural practice. Mm. The level of suffering is enormous. So your argument is that the level of suffering and these practices are so ingrained that trying to do that moderate route of you know, animal welfare is impossible, is what you're saying. I wish it weren't. And I really wish that we could say, look, there's a humane way to get this meat. And I think if you did it individually, you could creep up on an animal who's having a good life in the middle of the night when they're asleep and blow their brains out. And as long as he didn't have relatives who were around to see it, I mean, okay, fine. If you want to mm. do that, do it. But that's not how it is. And even the most conscientious consumer who tries to satisfy their conscience by listening to what's reading these labels and thinking, well, that's better. And I used to do it before I was vegetarian. I would buy Danish bacon because I heard that their slaughterhouses were more humane. No, I know. <laughs> this is just we're picking away at the tiniest little things, trying to justify a bad habit that we want to yeah. cling to. Not in, in your place, if you have something, you, you will find a way and you do. But most of us, we don't have that problem. We need to just say, what the hell am I doing? Why do I need to eat an animal? Why do I need to wear an animal's mm. skin? 
Why do I need to do any of these things? I'm a grown adult. I've got lots of choices in my life. And I just need to take the kind choice, the compassionate choice. I hear your frustration and I recognize it in myself because I have to do the same argument with people over and over again when I'm discussing the climate crisis and the responsibilities that we have and that, that argument, we're adults. You know, we're not kids, right? That's this right. is what we're here for. We're the, we're the grown-ups in the room. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to go through that with me. I took a lot from it. There were a bunch of things and um, I am going to take away, take away what you, you took care to explain to me. But how about we just backtrack a little to how you landed here? We have touched a little on some of the, the steps that led you to be doing what you do, but we might keep it a little brief. You grew up in India. Your mum worked in the leper colonies uh, with Mother Teresa. It's a very interesting start to life. You then became a stockbroker, you know, and um, you got married and then you wound up a law enforcement officer, a deputy sheriff. I mean, none of that makes any sense. Can you just talk us through how any of those bits led you to starting up Peter? Yes. When I was born, there was already a dog in my house called Shawnee. And we basically grew up as pals, as brother and sister, if you will. He slept in my bed and I slept in his basket. We went everywhere together. We played. Uh, I was an only child and there was the dog. And I didn't really think of him as some alien. He was my pal. So I always cared about animals. Maybe I just was that way. I, I don't understand works of art. Some people grow up, you know, being very artistic. I wasn't that. I was an animal person. But I got lost in my teens when I you know, found boys and things like that, forgot about all that. But when I went to America, I was studying for the brokerage exam. And my next door neighbor moved away and left a lot of cats. And I thought, well, now what am I going to do? I'll have to take them to an animal shelter. And so I put them in my Volkswagen bus at the time, it's way back when, took them to the animal shelter, and it was a hideous place filthy, horrible. And it, it upset me so much because I did care about animals. I just hadn't been seeing cruelty around me that I quit my job at the brokerage. They had a position open to clean kennels and I asked for it. They said, you're overqualified. And I thought, I don't even know what that means. You can be underqualified. How can you be overqualified for anything? And that opened my eyes to cruelty investigations, irresponsible ownership of dogs and cats, starvation of horses. So I went into law enforcement so as to be able to bring charges against people who were hurting animals. And through that, I got my training as a law enforcement officer. There was a government shift and I actually became a deputy sheriff. So I wasn't just doing cruelty to animals. I was doing regular law enforcement work, but I wanted to do animals all the time. And I formed yeah. Peter so that I could do that. And that's really how it all fell into place. A pivotal moment was the Silver Spring Monkeys expose. And you detail this in your book, Free the Animals, which has been just updated recently for the 30-year anniversary. And I should point out that Joaquin Phoenix does writes the forward for it. And I think he's, he's optioned the film rights as he well, has. hasn't he? Yes, very exciting. Mm, mm. So the Silver Spring Monkey, I think, could you explain what happened there? Because it was the really big turning point. I remember it. I know 
the images. It's vivid. So if you describe them, I think a lot of people will remember this, this time in history. Yeah, it was back in 1980. We had just begun Peter. And I wanted her co-founder, who had been aboard the Sea Shepherd, he had been going off to illegal whaling vessels, he had been on fox hunt sabbing, that kind of thing, to get some experience with what was happening in the U.S. inside animal laboratories. So the closest place to my apartment turned out when I looked at the government list of registered laboratories was a place called the Institute for Behavioral Research in Silver Spring, Maryland. So he went off and knocked on the door and said, do you have any openings? And they said, no. So he said, well, could I volunteer? They said, yes. So he did. And he found the 17 monkeys who were being brought over from Asia and were in these tiny cages, barely bigger than their own bodies, with broken wires, living in abject filth. There was a tray that their waist fell into beneath them that was basically never clean. So their own feces had turned white and grown mold on it, and they had to live above that. The experimenter was a psychologist. No medical training, no veterinary training. He had cut open their backs and rendered the nerves in their arms interfered with them. So they were partially sensate and partially insensate. So the monkeys would chew off their own fingers. They would get their arms caught in the cage bars and rip off parts of their fingers. And some of them had died of gangrene because he didn't know anything to do and he didn't care. And he just put the bodies in a big trash can that he filled with formaldehyde. So sometimes caretakers would feed them, sometimes they weren't. He had converted a little refrigerator and he put the monkeys in there with their bad arms, their missing fingers. And they had to pick uh, raisins out of an indented tray. And if they failed to do it, they got an electric shock. And they would bite into their arms and splatter blood on the inside of this refrigerator. So that's basically lots of things like that. That's just a part of it. He had a severed monkey hand on his desk and a severed monkey skull he used as an ornament. If that tells you anything. So we busted him. You busted him, you exposed it, you got video and, I think, and, and photographic evidence. Am I right in saying that this is what got the Animal Welfare Act changed to stop yeah. These experiments done on. Um, not much, because the, there's only one law in the US, which is the Federal Animal Welfare Act, that governs the care of animals in laboratory experiments. It doesn't preclude any experiment. But if the experiment is not designed to cause pain, you're not supposed to cause pain. Otherwise, it's what they call a housekeeping law, which means unless the experiment says, you are de definitely depriving an animal of water to see what happens. You have to give them water. Or food, you have to give them food. But otherwise, there's almost nothing else in it. Very, very little, and certainly nothing that precludes any experiment. But it was modified somewhat after that case. And inspections increased to now once or twice a year, which, of course, is not, doesn't knock your socks off, does it? No, no. I remember 60 Minutes in Australia, I think, covered it quite a bit yes. as well. Um, so I think that's how Australians, I think, might be familiar with it because it's become 
it's it's a familiar story anyway. Peter then went on to do a whole range of stuff. I mean, the results that you got are phenomenal. I think any activist in any sphere is is in awe. And a big part of what you've done is stunts, right? I've got to find the, the exact quote here. You said once to the New Yorker when they profiled you in 2003, we are complete press sluts. It is our obligation. And I think you also um, said elsewhere, thinkers may prepare revolution, but bandits must carry them out. So the most famous one, I think for most people, is the one where you had the supermodels. This, this extended over a number of years, but supermodels posing naked to protest fur, you know, with the slogan, I'd rather go naked than wear fur. I also like the time, and I remember reading about this, where you went and sort of invaded the Vogue, Vogue magazine, the US Vogue, with Anna Wintour to protest against fur once again, and you took over the reception. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened there and what Anna Wintour's reaction was? Well, we were always after Anna Wintour because she never failed to promote fur in Vogue, even when French Vogue had stopped having it and other Vogues had stopped. I mean, French Vogue doesn't need fur. Why on earth would other Vogues need fur? But she got a lot of free furs from the furriers that she was always seen in, and he actually called her fur of him. She was unmovable when it came to this, even if we, we know she had seen the videos of the incredible suffering on fur farms with animals going out of their minds and, um, and the trapping, of course, and she still wore it all. So um, we decided we'd do something. We invaded her office. We went up and Condé Nast and the elevator went into her right. office. She fled into her backroom office. And I actually took over the reception. Everybody else left. You know, not, not the protesters. We were all there. But the staff all left, except Anna was in her office with the door locked. And it was good because all sorts of people call Vogue. And I could just answer the phone and say, you know, hi, Vogue. No, I'm sorry, we're closed for cruelty because we've still been selling for promoting fur. She never changed all those years. Other people, Kelvin Klein, everybody has gradually changed until you're hard pressed to find any designer who still uses fur. Now they're stepping away from exotic skins, from mohair, from cash. It's wonderful. The Met Gala. We've asked them not to have feathers because, of course, we've done an expose into ostrich feathered farming, which is hideous, all those things. So things have moved on, but Anna got her first faux fur coat about two years ago from Stella McCartney, and she wore it. And I thought, this is a very big moment. This person who dug their heels in, love nor money would not change, is now in a faux fur. So we'll see. Bravo. What's the most creative or successful stunt? Like, what has really worked? Oh, my. I mean, you mentioned I'd rather go naked than wear fur, which now uh, Alicia Silverstone was just posing for us in um, completely nude because she's very proud of her beliefs, you know, for children, for animals and so on, with um, in her cactus leather boots saying, don't be a prick, don't wear a real leather. <laughs> so, I mean, there are provocative things we do all the time. And as you say, we are press sluts. I've said that because in the old days, you could hand out a pamphlet on the street to one person. But if you can get in the press on social media, you can get millions of people to get the message. And if you have to do it with humor, with sex, with 
provocation just so they look. Because, I mean, look at Kim Kardashian. I mean, why? But, and bless her heart, she doesn't wear fur either. And she's a vegan now. But people want to know everything she's doing. So if mm-hmm. we can buy in somehow to get a serious social issue like suffering of animals, slaughter of animals, into the media so that everyone can hear about it and start discussing it and thinking about it and deciding if their behaviors are apt or inappropriate, then off we go. That's what you'll do. I mean, influencers probably make it a little easier. They make your job harder when they're promoting the wrong thing because the imagery is just ubiquitous. But back in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you had to put your body on the line. You've hung naked, I think, in the borough markets alongside was it pig carcasses. You've done all kinds of stuff. I mean, is there one that you're, I don't know if the word proud is appropriate. If there's one one that has represented the most desperate, maybe even just put you at a point where you were really at your edge. Well, you know, you have to do what you can do. And our line is nonviolence to living beings. So we'll never do anything that harms anybody. But all the car companies in the world, with the exception of one, were at crash testing their cars by slamming pigs and baboons into a wall with electrodes in them so you would see the effect of the, of the smasher. And we tried, General Motors, biggest car company in the world, we tried to meet with them. We begged them to. You know, we had scientists who could help them do it in another way. Nothing. So we started protesting at auto shows, nothing. We started handcuffing ourselves to cars at auto shows. We'd have to cut the, the steering wheel, nothing. So in the end, I remember we get members would donate their General Motors cars and we'd have to take out part of the engine and then we'd tow them outside the auto shows and set them ablaze. That was pretty edgy because fire is, you know, tricky business, but it was all safe. It's just you'll go to jail for a long time for doing that. And I remember having to run very fast, not to be locked up on several occasions. I thought you went to prison for that. Did you go to prison for not 15 for days for that one? No, not for that. I've been to jail you know, quite a few times. Um, I think the one you're thinking about, which is prison, as opposed to lock up or jail, was running onto the fields when gunners were shooting pigeons that they had captured in a city and were letting them loose. It was the Haggins pigeon shoot. Is that the one where there were members of the Ku Klux Klan exactly. also there? Yeah, yeah. Mm. The, the fire department was making money. It was in rural Pennsylvania. And members of the KKK would come in their hoods to support this shoot. Pigeons were brought in by the crate full from Philadelphia, big cities, and then even little kids would have shotguns. And when the pigeons were released, everybody would blast. And some people couldn't hit the side of a barn. So a pigeon would come down. And as I say, they're so loyal. They love their mates and they love their kids. And they would be on the ground and a whole pigeon would come down and sit with the injured pigeon. So I led people two years in a row out of the field to stop the gunners. This is a miracle. They might not have stopped, <laughs> but luckily they did stop. And we, we spent a lot of time in jail because we refused to make bail. Yeah. Hey, I've taken up a fair bit of your time here, but I feel that I've 
given listeners a good indication of the way that you've lived your life, the commitment. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you reflect on your life? You started out, as you say, wearing, was it a cat fur hat and, you know, really oblivious to some of these issues. And here you are in your mid-70s still fighting. It's very much been your dharma. It's what you do. I imagine it's also been a lonely life. I think I have it right. You were you were married briefly, but you didn't have children. And I say this not as a judgment because I've made a similar choice. Would you be able to speak about that a little, looking back on what you've done and and the legacy of it and and whether you've enjoyed your radical life? Well, it's not a lonely life, and I've had a partner now for many years. I don't think I'll get married again. I love my husband. No, we were on great terms. He he died, but. We were, on, we were great times when we were, uh, when he was still alive. My parents were always very supportive. They first gone now, and I always had animals in my life from the, from childhood, and from childhood I never wanted to have children. I just I'd seen orphans. I in 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 India, you know, gone with my mother to the orphanage, and I thought you should adopt if you're going to have any. And then I got too busy, so I'd be a terrible mother because I'm too busy. But I feel so privileged, honest God, that. I could have been a stockbroker. And what's the joy for me in selling stocks to people I know or, and making money? It just doesn't interest me. But the wonderful feeling that is, it's gratifying. And I would probably do it if it, if it were not. I hope I'd have enough character to do that. But it, to be able to see the look in the eyes of one of the earthquake victims from Turkey or Syria that we've reunited with their family, a dog or a cat that we've pulled from the ruins because we're there, or you know anything that we're doing, an animal we've taken out of a laboratory, just freed a hundred animals in Colombia from a lab where they were in terrible. This to me is, I'm I'm so glad. I'm afraid that my life is in the last part of it, and I dread the fact of losing my activism. Hence my will. But I'm so glad I, I didn't, don't have a clock-punching job. I, I found what I wish I'd found it earlier, but I guess I found it fairly early. Ingrid, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your legacy. I suspect we've got a fair bit of activism to, to, to be seen from you over the next Hopefully. coming years. And, yeah, I, I really appreciate your work, and I'm glad you exist on this planet. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for doing the show. Right, so she might have been pilliard for decades for being an extremist and there might be an army of haters out there with, you know, suggestions for what she should do with her body and her will. But there's no getting around the fact that Ingrid is a genial, vibrant human who I really am glad exists on this planet. You guys couldn't see this, but she and I on the video, we were watching each other and Ingrid smiles as she speaks and genuinely looks like someone who enjoys being fired up. She's she's making the better way look more charming than the status quo, as I often say, is the trick to creating change. The extremists are important, I believe. Swinging the pendulum of debate and progress is hard and radical effort has always been required to do this. I've come to accept this fact and and to almost like it over the years. It's not appropriate for me to be all prim and proper with my comfortable place in my white privilege and to judge radicalism at this stage in history. 
These brave, tireless people make all the sacrifices, do the hard, extreme version of the thing to get the rest of us moving more toward, well, at least the middle. I think the most significant takeaway from Ingrid that she shared in our chat was this idea that we need to get ourselves you know, real about our sense of supremacy because the basis of such thinking is, is flawed. If we choose to eat meat or buy products that are known to diminish the welfare or the rights of animals, then we need to at the very least establish a different ethical argument and own any compromised choices that we decide to make. I have personally justified my various choices with different data sets and modulating practices. I try to buy as many things as I can in my life, secondhand or as seconds. As something of an influencer, I don't promote or glamorise animal products, although I can't say that I haven't in the past. But I've walked away from that conversation with Ingrid, forced to accept that some of my ethical justifying just doesn't stack up. And to face my engagement in what could very well be cruel practices that are happening behind the scenes and the fact I use animals. I buy into the learned notions of human superiority, I think, to do this. So I will continue to remain alive to my complicity. I will send those papers about the Australian situation that I mentioned to Ingrid and her team for their response and I'll revert back. Meantime, the link to that article that I mentioned that outlines that Australian predicament argument in the conversation is in the show notes, as well as a rebuttal or a counter that I also came across. If Peter come back to me, I'll be sure to share what they say over at my Substack newsletter, which you can all sign up to. Again, that's in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I include the George Monbiot statement and also put any books that I reference in our conversation. Okay, let's keep it honest and wild, as always, and I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.